session with Dr. Dickerson, we discuss hopes for future waves of family therapy, what we learn from our histories, and nuanced considerations of a virtual world. Welcome to the AFTA podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Victoria Dickerson. Dr. Victoria Dickerson is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been teaching narrative ideas and practices in workshops and seminars worldwide for over 20 years. She has taught for Santa Clara University, San Jose State University, Johns Hopkins University, and Mercy College in New York. She is the past president of AFTA from 2017 to 2019, from whom she received the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2012. She has been a director of two training centers, working with students and interns as she teaches family and narrative therapy. Dr. Dickerson actively publishes on narrative therapy with couples, young adults, and families. Her books are both popular and academic. Vicky, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so honored to have you here. Uh, as you know, I. Um, I had the privilege of meeting you at a conference in Vancouver, uh, and you were the one who invited me into AFTA. So thank you so much. And it's kind of a nice full circle experience to be in this conversation with you here today. So as you know, I like to start off these conversations with the question of what's been capturing your attention in your work these days? So before I answer that, Naveed, um, I should say I thank you for having met you. I um, I kind of talked Naveed into becoming an AFTA member and then he got on the board and now he's doing these podcasts and poor guy, he just <laughs> he no, got captured by AFTA. I'm which so is really okay. Yeah, I am too. I am too. So so what's capturing my interest? It's such an interesting question because as I was saying to you before this started, when you get to be over 80, you do a lot of looking backward instead of looking forward. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, I'm still looking forward. That's a, that's good news. Uh, uh, that's, that's good news. You don't want to just look backward. But I do want to talk a little bit about what I've done recently because I'm really, really pleased with it. So in um, at the end of COVID, sometime in 2022, David Epstein asked me to write something about my experience with Michael White. Mm-hmm. And sort of an origin story, how I met him, how it influenced my life, where it went from there. And he's asked other people to do that. So David publishes an online journal on narrative therapy, and all those sort of autoethnographies are are located there. I don't think mine's up yet. I just finished it. It took me two years to finish it. So that's... that's, Labor of love. I mean, part of it was, yeah, part of it was because you know, post-COVID, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, and it's, you know, it's really interesting to do a retrospective. Um, and I just, for this podcast, I just took another look at it. And I'm just going to give you a little summary because I think it's really important. Meeting Michael White was life-changing for me. It was like uh, a conversion experience. In fact, that's what I call, that's my title a narrative origin and conversion 
story um, or a narrative, a narrative and origin inversion story, um, an experience of connections. And so it was really kind of fun to write and look back at it from that perspective. So I met Michael White in 1988. So we're talking about, what, 45 years ago? Um, and then Michael died in 2008. So it's really shaped my life and my thinking. And it's it's not Michael so much, it's Michael's thinking mm. that shapes your life. And it's that post-structural approach, and it's that knowledge of um, multiple, multiple identities, multiple possibilities. And it was it was a, it was um as I said it was life changing. So it sent my life in a direction where um I had already met Jeff Zimmerman. At a conference in in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, we ended up with Evan Ember Black, and Evan, Evan's a, an amazing person. That was a great connection. So then Jeff introduced me to, to Michael in 1988. So that started a, a a whole line of things that we did. That you know it becomes, as I said, a retrospective. Mm-hmm. You know, we started a training center. We did a lot of writing together. Um, we did a lot of traveling and teaching. We went to Adelaide for the first narrative conference. Oh. We went to to Hamilton, New Zealand, for the first um, uh, their NZAC conference. I met a ton of people, and it's so enriching. And and yet, as I was writing it, I realized that one of the things that that influenced me. Kind of a traje- a trajectory I wouldn't have actually expected to happen because I was really um, connected to the to the narrative community. In 1992, I think Jeff and I joined AFTA at Evan Ember Black's suggestion, and she'd been suggesting it for some time. <laughs> she'd been she was president of AFTA. She got me involved in being the program chair. In San Francisco in 1996 was an absolutely wonderful experience. And Evan's very, very good at promoting people. But what happened, I think, is that I got very connected to the after community, Mm. which was also life-changing. So instead of just being, as I say, a one-trick pony, just being involved in narrative ideas, which I didn't ever lose, Mm -hmm. I was now with a wider community who had multiple ways of thinking. Not all post-structural, you know, not all in the same way of thinking that I was, but these connections were important because it, it helped me really ground the idea, not just the idea, but the knowledge that we have multiple ways of talking about things. Mm-hmm. And none, none of them are truth. They're just ways of talking about things. So it was, you know, one of the things I said I probably shouldn't say this. One of the things I said in my autoethnography is that I felt like I was a subversive influencer, um, which was good for me because I made lots of friends in AFTA. But not only in AFTA, because I I got invited to teach at San Jose State University, which is very cognitive behavioral oriented. Mm -hmm. And and yet I was well respected for my way of thinking because it was always like I never came from a place of I'm right and you're wrong. I always came from a place of what you're doing is interesting. I want to know more. 
And this is how I think about it. And that's been really heartwarming for me because it's allowed me to have lots of friends, you know, mm. lots of people that I can connect to and that I still am, am connected to. People I still call, people we, you know, we're, we're, we share ideas. And, um, you know, I, 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 I thank the after community for that happening. Mm. Um, and it's possible. It's actually possible anywhere, but because the after community is a, is a, a, a smallish group of, of people who are really good thinkers, yeah. you know, it's possible to have connections. Now those connections are less possible now because so much is virtual. I guess maybe some people say it's more possible because it's virtual, but I'm, that's one of the things I'm interested in writing about actually is, um, the, how virtual learning has helped us and hurt us. Mm. So um, anyway, that's one of my future things. But I just wanted to mention that autoethnography because it was really fun to write, and it was fun for me to um, ex- go back and re-experience the fact that this was a these were really good connections for me, and they continue to be, and and. You know, you don't you don't have to be stuck in one way of thinking, for sure. Yeah. Um, the other thing I did I want to mention. So Evan, I, I got a I got a, um, an email from Jim Duvall. Jim is the editor of the Journal of Systemic Therapies, mm-hmm. and they're doing what they're calling a classic edition, where they're republishing things that were written many years ago. One of the things they're republishing is a 1981 article by Evan Ember Black, and the title is great, Evan's great at titles. The title is, He's Not Mad, He's Not Bad, He's Just Young. <laughs> it's a very interesting article because it was written in 1981, and it comes from a very strategic point of view. Mm. And, you know, where the therapist came up with um, a frame or a prescription and sort of talked the family into it so that the family could then think differently and be more helpful. But it's a really different point of view. And so one of the things Jim asked me to do is what's changed in family therapy in the last, what are we talking about, 44 years or 42 years, 42 years, 1981 to 2023, 2024. So it was fun to write. Um, I'm short. I mean, just an introduction. I just asked to write an introduction. And so that should be coming out pretty soon. And um, it was was fun to write. It was fun to write. Jim liked it. Evan liked it. We're calling the title. The title is really interesting. It's interesting because I do file names. So I I wrote this introduction. I didn't like it. So I just left it. Evan's paper. So I wrote something else. That was Evan's take two. So Evan's take two, I did steal some stuff from the original paper. I wrote new stuff. And so when Jim got it, he said, so what's the title of this introduction? Is it Evans Take Two? I said, well, that was really just my file name, but I kind of like it. So I asked Evan, she liked it. So that's the name of the introduction. Oh, I love it. Evans Take Two. Yeah, I do too. And, and And that was fun to write. So one of the things that happened for me in finishing that autoethnography and writing that little introduction is I thought, I really like to write. So I need to keep writing. 
so I need to keep writing. And I just lost an AirPod. I do not want to lose an AirPod. But one of the things that came up for me was, what am I going to write? So the thing that I just mentioned is, I, I actually wrote something in 2020 uh, that that um, Jay LeBeau, who was the editor of Family Practice at the time, asked several people to write articles about about COVID and the experience of COVID and the effects of COVID. And that was kind of early on because COVID right, had just that. hit us all. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> grabbing my airpipe. So, what I wrote about, the paper's called, I can't remember what it's called, The Flip, Sustaining Complexities, et cetera, et cetera, post-COVID or post-whatever, post, post um, whatever, whatever it was, post-isolation. And it's a little newish in terms of, because I was very kind of anti-Zoom at the time, but that's mm-hmm. what we had. And so I really want to write something about what virtual learning, virtual therapy has done for us and what's taken away from us, and how can we recapture the the in-person physicality and physiology of therapy that um, we need to, I, I just think we need to pay attention to. So that's one thing I want to write. The other thing I want to write is I've had a client recently who, when he left, when we finished therapy, I, he may come back, but just sort of intermittently. I thought how some clients help us be better therapists. So how do we become better therapists? And how some clients are such a struggle, it's hard to stay a good therapist. So I want to write a little bit about that because because I don't think that's been written about. <laughs> and and it's, it's hands-on. It's, it's in the room uh, instead of just theory. Right. It's like, yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's... I'm I, I'm, I'm, really... I'll stop talking. No, please. I'm really, I'm really drawn to this last piece, but I just to capture a little bit of what you've said here, Vicky, because it's so rich. Um, first and foremost, wanting to kind of honor the history you've had in the field and the work and some of the stories about Michael and Jeff Zimmerman, the folks that you kind of have come across, the connections you've made. For, for someone like me, it's kind of uh, hearing those stories. It feels like when I hear stories about people going to like the first Beatles concert or like, oh, I saw Led Zeppelin and I'm like, Oh man, what a time right. to be around rock and roll, right? Right, um, right. So I hear these stories and I'm like, oh man, what a time to be around family therapy. Um, yeah. And then I just want to agree that like my, I'm grateful for my uh, invitation and kind of uh, community with the AFTA world. And yeah, I think I really value the diversity of ideas because I think in my experience yeah, at yeah. least being saturated too much in one bubble whatever it is can sometimes lead to right. a certain fundamentalism that like limits creativity um, yeah. and i think the after community even just through this podcast hearing the different ways that people are talking about their work and their lives and their clients is really invigorating so i think it's an important reminder or like encouragement for us to stay connected to other ways of thinking and it makes me think of like yeah. you know back to my whole what a time for family therapy. One of my favorite videos is that debate or not debate, but like that conversation between um, 
uh, Micron Sal. It was my my Micron Sal. And uh, yeah, Michael White. Michael White and Sal Manusa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like, know it's a good one. Great, great stuff yeah. that people are having these like arguments and discussions. And sometimes I hope that we can continue yeah. to have those despite the social divides that we kind of seem to expound upon yeah, now. The, polariz- the, the, the polarization. Yeah. I, I do want to say that, like, Vicky, it, it, it seems, especially in your more recent writing um, and just what you were just saying here, that's a lot of your attention is kind of around the contemporary landscape of family therapies relates to like the virtual format right. zoom i'm thinking about like ai um and how that's going to be oh completely- god yes absolutely yeah yeah absolutely. what what is it about this virtual world that captures your attention right i guess especially as you're the way i'm hearing you is like you're sitting pretty squarely in the intersection of the past and the future and looking back at a really storied history and then also like wondering about where this is all headed like what do you see you know, I'm glad you brought up AI because I've been reading a lot about it. I mean, it's just one, one of the things that I value about my way of thinking is that I always want to learn something new. And and I always, I can't, I can't this is kind of arrogant what I'm going to say, but I, I feel like I'm really good at catching the next wave. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of that. I was, um, for a while, on the Family Process Institute board. And then I left the board to become an associate editor, thanks to Jay LeBeau, who asked me to set up all the connections for, at the time, was brand new stuff um, with Facebook and Twitter and not Instagram yet, but uh, to get us us involved in the social media. And he was... Jay is very forward thinking. Um, in fact, I'll tell you a story about Jay. So I got the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2012, and then I kept doing stuff, you know, now 2024. I was in your retirement, so you got, didn't get the achievement yeah, and yeah, say that's yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so Jay got the Lifetime Achievement Award, I don't know when, 2016 maybe. And he's, he's, when he got it, he said, Vicky tells me this is not the end of it. You can still go on, <laughs> which is really true. This is not the end of it. But Jay is very forward thinking. And so he got us and he got me to get us involved, the Family Process Institute, with all the new social media stuff, which I did. I did for a while as associate editor. And then I talked them into hiring me as a social media person, uh, social media strategist. So I did that actually until I became president of ACTA. And then I was doing too many things. But one of the things I wanted to do was to set us up to do podcasts. And that was before podcasts became a thing. Not podcasts are a thing. So I really value the fact that I can look ahead. And so when you ask me about the virtual stuff, AI, um, Zoom, you know, what 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 we're doing, it's like I want to pay attention to that. I just want to pay attention to it. It doesn't mean I have any, right now, I don't have any answers. I just think it's interesting stuff. Yeah. And I think that's what people saw going. It's what, what's interesting. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, if it's okay. I Because I, I have a complicated relationship with technology, I think. Uh, well, that's a whole other conversation. But 
what I'm trying to get at here is that <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> I, I suppose like I, I relate to your position of like when kind of the Zoom stuff was coming out because my our, our our shared colleague Gerald Monk all, I think also is pretty good at catching future waves and he um, I think so, kind of predicted yeah. the Zoom thing pretty far ahead of COVID and as it was happening and I was a bit like reticent for this kind of the Zoom stuff a little bit. And like we are, you know, for listeners, you and I are meeting on Zoom in different locations, like taking full advantage right. of the technologies. And of I course, think sometimes, sometimes I can be vulnerable to getting into a bit of a conservative position around technology. So in an effort to have a more nuanced conversation, at least with Zoom, since AI is just playing out right now, what do you yeah. think, by your, by your personal assessment, what are the kind of the helpful aspects of Zoom that should be really considered and maintained? And then what are the limitations that Zoom or or like virtual platforms bring into the family theory? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's really what I've been thinking about. I mean, I, I know two different sets of people. One would be a set of people who did not use Zoom. They had offices that people come to their offices, there was no other way to do it. Once COVID hit, they had no other option except to learn to use some sort of virtual platform. Now, I was lucky because I'd use Zoom with Acta. I'd already used it. Um, so that's one set of people. And my colleagues in New York are, are in that set because New Yorkers, if they don't have to travel, they're not going to travel. You know, they're going to use Zoom. The other set of people are younger therapists who are just coming into the field who only know Zoom mm. or they only know Zoom as the better option. You know, I, I mentor a couple of students at Mercy, it's Mercy University now in New York, and they work in an agency or they do their internship in an agency where they have very few in person meetings. And it's because Zoom so easy. You don't have to travel. You're right there. When you do any visual platform like we're doing right now, I don't get you. I get a digitalized version of you. Right. I don't have you in the room. I don't have your your beautiful face, your nice beard, your buzzed haircut, your sweat, you know, your 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 movements, your how you smell, I don't get any of that. Right. I don't get your um, your agitation. Yes, the clenching you know, of the fist I under the table. Seriously, I don't get your pleasure. I get a smile and your twinkly eyes, which is kind of cool. But when we lose that, we're just talking to a, a face. So some of the people I know who I think are very creative are digitalizing or using virtual stuff to set up teaching platforms, but they're doing a lot of hybrid. We'll do this, but we'll have hubs where we get together once in a while. Or a therapist, like when I started doing Zoom stuff, I had a client in, in uh, this was during after. I had a client in San Francisco who I got to know through Zoom. I was going to open for our 2019 conference 
I said to her, can you come over to Oakland so we can have a, a meeting in person? Which she did. And the difference was, first of all, I found out she's short. I didn't know she was short, for one thing. You know, I'm just looking at her face and shoulders. So, and and she had such a nice movement about her, which I couldn't see otherwise. You know, in a way of a way of uh, changing her, her physicality that I couldn't see on Zoom. And it was sweet, and it changed. It changed. It enhanced the way I thought about her. And so, I just really think that. If people are going to use virtual, so for example, let's do something else, meetings. When you have a virtual meeting, you, know, you have all these possibilities with Zoom. You can subdivide, you can put people in different meeting groups. You can, you know, there's just a lot of possibilities, right. which, which are helpful. But you don't have the possibility of after the meeting, Talking to each other and and working out some disagreement you had. You don't have the possibility of going out in the parking lot and throwing a football around. You just have the meeting, right? Right. And and people can get hurt or people can feel good, but they really don't know the the full of it. You don't know the full of it. So I just think we need a lot of hybrid stuff if we're going to keep doing this. And we need to create it. We need to create possibilities to be together in person. Yeah, I so wonder. I just felt like I, I, I just felt like I gave a speech. So sorry. No, it was in, it was definitely invited. So thank you. Yeah, I, I I just feel like the with AI because I I'm familiar with now clients, and I don't know if you've tried this, but you can go to ChatGPT and ask questions that you would ask a therapist to ChatGPT. And it'll give you a highly refined answer. So in terms of like the linguistic necessity, or maybe not even linguistic, like the the things that we might might want cognitively from a therapist, AI can do. Um, so there's maybe something about, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're I see your distinction coming. Right. There's something about the affect and the movement. And my concern with AI, or not AI, sorry, with the Zoom platform too, or the virtual platform is. I think it individualizes context more than it create makes relational depending right. on the circumstance. And right. I think I've heard my colleagues sometimes position it as better for the client when it kind of seems like it's primarily better for them, the therapist. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. I don't want to be I don't want to be critical because at the same time, like I've, for example, I had a. I work with couples in violence and sometimes having couples who have a history of violence being therapy together in different locations on zoom is really quite useful, especially for some of the safety considerations. Yeah. Uh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. The last thing I'll say too about that. Um, sorry, Vicky, now I'm on my own rant here. Um, That's all right. all right. That's what I like about your interview. So here we go. <laughs> I remember teaching uh, apologies yeah. I was just going to say real quick I remember teaching a class uh, it was a cross-cultural counseling course so we'd have some intense conversations in that context online during COVID sure. and as tough conversations would come up 
people would turn off their cameras and then they'd come back when they settled oh, down a little yeah. bit. But like there was something about the richness of a reaction that we were losing because oh. people wanted to limit the reaction. Oh, well, so I wonder about that too. So anyways, these are just a bunch of like memories and thoughts and yeah, curious about Jane how, had a, please. I had a client, a client of a youngish guy, well, youngish, I think young, in his mid fifties, I think. So kind of a high powered um, management guy coming to my office and a, a big guy, you know, a lot of a lot of body, right? But this was all in person. So I walk into my office one day to sit down to talk to him, and he says, "I didn't realize how small you are." <laughs> and it was such an interesting comment because he's concerned about his heft, about how big he is, and whether that influences people in negative ways. That couldn't have happened on Zoom, right? Couldn't have happened. So it was pretty. It was pretty funny, actually. Didn't realize how small you are. <laughs> so, well, as, you're, as you're watching, like this new generation kind of cruise through, and as you're supporting <laughs> them, I, I just selfish. I'm going to position myself as a new generation, even though my grades are probably upset at that positioning. Um, but let's say I'm in a younger generation. <laughs> what are some like right. Things that you might want us to like keep an eye on and be careful of, or and things that you're excited for in this kind of upcoming wave. That's so interesting question. Um, so, so my goddaughter and I think a lot of maybe people who are working in some kind of management position and working with people of all ages is is quite interested in the difference between you know, Gen X. Millennials, Gen Z, Boomers, um, and, and the difference that they bring to to um, to conversations and to life, and to organizations, and she's she's good at that because she has to navigate all of that. And uh, you know, I'm not a big believer in that kind of categorization, but there's something about it that's helpful, I think. And so, like astrology science. Say again. It's kind of like astrological science. Like I'm like, oh, that's so silly, and then I read it, and I'm like, it's kind of a compelling. It's not so silly. It's it's not so silly after all, right? So so you can learn from you can really learn from anything. Um, And so I talked to her, and I said, so I'm seeing these two clients who are this age. You know, what group would you put them in? And what do they need to, that would be helpful to them? She said, they're always looking for solutions and they're always looking for meaning. And I thought, well, that sounds like a lot of us. Mm. But um, it was helpful because the two people, they're youngish. I can't say very much because, you know, I can't give it away. Um, Want quick solutions. They want answers right now. And so I'm, I'm really trying to pay attention to What's influencing whatever age group I'm in that will help me understand what I can do to help them? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go back to AI, you know, I do think that you're the, the, the missing piece is the affect, of course. Um, so if we put all our eggs in a cognitive basket, 
we're just not going to know everything. Yeah, well, and the AI technically we, knows better than we do. Uh, technically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we get to pick and choose. Yeah. Right? No, we get yeah. to pick and choose. That's the difference. Yeah. We, yeah, we I, get I, to decide. I've been inspired by folks like yourself and Dr. Gerald Monk and others who are future oriented in the ways that you're invitational of new technologies. And I think I took that on because, you know, with the AI stuff that's coming around, a lot of academic or like, you know, uh, folks in teaching positions are rightfully a little nervous about what kinds of assignments they can have students do that are actually done by the students. And Absolutely. Yeah, yes. I discovered a kind of a cool function of um, I was using chat GPT with my students to have them take all their questions out of an interview that they did and run it through an analysis with chat GPT to see what chat GPT says, what kind of theory they're using. And it was actually pretty yes. fascinating. How fun. How fun. What a good idea. I love it. Yeah. So they get, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the risk again in that a practice like that or with AI is kind of like we're saying with the cognitive stuff, it kind of supports like the technification of knowledge, right? That like narrative yeah. is X questions. And if you're doing CBT, you're asking these questions and the context yeah. of a moment isn't as privileged. So Perhaps. I love that word, technification. It's a good word. Yeah, that's, um, that, was, that emerged in a conversation with uh, my colleague, Marcella Polanco, who was kind of speaking to that. So oh, I really? With Marcella? Give her, give her credit for it. Yeah, cool. That's hers. Say, say hi to Marcella for me. I will. So, <laughs> yeah. So you're not terribly... Well, I think we have to be... I'm sorry. I just say we have to be... We have to be, we have to be cautious, that's all. Yeah. Just cautious. Cautious, but not worried, it sounds like, from what I'm hearing you saying. Well, that's how I think. I was going to use the word careful, but I use the word cautious instead because it's a little nuanced. Um, worry doesn't help, right? The worry is not going to help. Caution yeah. might help. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. It's, it's exciting. It's exciting, Naveed. It's exciting time. I'm thinking about the usage of the word careful. That is prevalent in narrative, like the right. care dash full. Right. Yeah. Just use with care. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Vicky, as I look to yourself and folks who I consider mentors or perhaps uh, various images of what a, a future for a therapist can hold, um, what is therapy or kind of like your uh, career look like in your 80s? What what have you come to discover about what you do? Because I kind of think of jazz like I'm sorry about therapy like a jazz musician like the, those of old cats are course. really good you know like that's who you want right. to see right. perform. Right. So there's a term that Bill Madsen created that comes from from a, a, a jazz perspective. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Discipline. Improvisation. Yes. Isn't that nice? Disciplined improvisation. And I think that's where we are. But maybe we've always been there. But the challenge is more noticeable right now. And you know, the thing you, you talk about in my 80s doing therapy, the advantage I have, I mentioned this to you ahead of time, 
is I I have more time than I used to have. I used to have I used to feel like I had no time. I have more time, and when you have more time, you have more time to reflect. So the question is, what are you going to reflect on? <laughs> what are you going to spend your time thinking about? Um, I'm, and it helps me because when I think about my clients, for example, I think about how can I be a better therapist, which is not a bad way to think. No? And so when I read something, I think about how, how do I learn from this? You know, how do I critique it? What do I know that helps me learn from it? So it's, it's really nice time of life, quite honestly. You know, not as busy as your time of life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look I look forward to some slowness at some point in my life. Um for folks listening, we're in February 2024. No, we're in January of 2024. What am I talking about? And I have a baby. I know you're jumping ahead, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you have a baby forward. coming. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm thinking about your slowness and reflections, and I'm like, oh man, that would be quite the luxury. That's gonna be hard to come by. It's <laughs> gonna be hard to come by. Yeah, yeah. Just, just let's hold your baby and reflect. Right? Uh, well deserved for sure. Well, yeah, Vicky, it's such a pleasure to be with you here today. Um, as we're kind of rounding out our conversation here, and kind of like your long legacy with AFTA too. Do you have any hopes for the AFTA community? and kind of its future, if that's an okay question to ask you. Well, it's a great question to ask. You know, I think after it's undergone some, well, obviously, undergone some changes in the last three or four years that I think are hopeful. Um, and I hope it can, can bring more more people in who are interested in, in after as a community. Yeah. I think that's what we had always had to offer. That people call it a professional home. I hope it continues to be a professional home. So so there certainly a group of people who are in my cohort group who are or a bit younger, who you know, hold a lot of the history and they're they're still available to younger people to learn from. Yeah. But I really hope that there's a cohort of younger people who create their own kind of after identity because after ch- everything changes, might as well change it in ways that you would prefer. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think in the context of our conversation about just the quickness of technology and what kind of context that we tether ourselves to, whether it's the seasons or the moon or social media, that a community like AFTA can tether us nicely to yeah, each other and some professional practices that are socially just and forward thinking and ethical. Right, right. And ethical. And I like the word tether. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Vicki, Dr. Dickerson. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.